Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour, and this week we have another Best of Power Hour. Now, before I get into it, I should say I am preparing some new episodes of Power Hour. I already have Robert Bryce, author of Power Hungry and a new book, A Question of Power, uh, on the docket for late March. And I've got a bunch of ideas for segments that I'm going to do and then a bunch of ideas for guests. So those should be coming in the next couple of weeks. But this week we have another Best of Power Hour. This one is with Richard Salzman on the topic of waste and pollution. A little bit of background, although I'll get it into more of it in the actual episode. When I was 18, 18, maybe 19, I watched a lecture by this economist, Richard Salzman, on capitalism and environment. And one thing I noticed was that even though he was an economist, he was very focused on philosophical precision and in particular moral precision when talking about environment and the question of, well, in what sense is environment a value? And he was really looking at it from a human perspective. Another thing I remember is that he was really questioning the way that the concept natural is used in an anti-human way. So I, several years ago, brought him on to discuss these issues many, many years later. I guess this was now, geez, it's got to be 21 years ago that I, uh, that I saw this. And this, this episode with Richard is maybe five years old. But uh, yeah, I, I really think you'll enjoy this and find his clarity refreshing and also his passion about the issue. It's really great to have an economist who's also very passionate about these issues, uh, as one should be, because they matter so much for human life. So hope you enjoy this week's episode. Sorry, my voice is a little off again this week. I think it'll improve by next week. And if you are not on the mailing list and you want to be on it, go to www.alexepsteinlist.com. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with another Power Hour, maybe a best of, maybe a new one. In either case, we'll make sure that it is educational and motivational. All right, talk to you soon. Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the issues of waste and pollution. Now, these have come up on various episodes, including the recent episode with Jerry Taylor of the Cato Institute, but we've never devoted a whole show to it. And uh, a friend of mine and economist, Richard Salzman, who also happens to be a very philosophical guy and has a lot of interesting insights about political philosophy, emailed me recently uh, with some thoughts about this issue and thought that they would be useful for me and for CIP. And I agreed. So on today's episode, we'll have Richard on to discuss these issues in depth, and it should be a really great discussion. So stick around, and we will talk pollution and waste on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. All right, joining us is economist Richard Salzman. Richard, welcome to Power Hour. 
Thank you for having me, Alex. So just to give the audience uh, a bit of background, so Richard uh, is an economist and is, I don't think, known too much publicly on commenting on energy or environmental issues, but he actually had a formative influence on me when I think I was about 19 years old, or actually 18 years old. I was a freshman at Duke University and someone showed me a video called something like Capitalism and the Environment. And this guy, Richard Salzman, and I had no idea who he was at the time, though I subsequently got to know him quite well, he made these really interesting points about waste and environmental issues. And, and one that, that stuck with me was his observation that everything in nature involves waste, and yet there seems to be this only human waste seems to carry with it this stigma, and yet the rest of nature, waste is considered natural and normal. And that, that got me thinking about a lot of things and just in environmental issues, how there seems to be a kind of anti-human uh, premise. So anyway, uh, fast forward about 12 or 13 years, I think Richard watched my debate with Bill McKibben, and he saw an answer I gave on pollution, and he said, yeah, that's, a, that's you make some good points, but how about these points? And he made some really, really good points about waste uh, that reminded me of this lecture way back in the day. So I decided, hey, let's talk about them because I, I cover that issue a bit in my book, uh, my ebook, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet. And I'm going to discuss it much more extensively in my upcoming book, Progressive Energy. So I thought we would uh, go from there. So Richard, let me just ask first, how did you become interested in environmental issues and in, in reframing them in the way that you have? Well, it was around the 1990 period, and there was a 20th anniversary of the original uh, Earth Day of 1970. So uh, I was just a little boy, maybe 11 or 10 in 1970, but I remember the 70s entirely being, they called it ecology then, not environmentalism. But uh, fast forward to 1990, and those who were around at the time will recall that, uh, and that was even during the Bush years, so it wasn't even during Clinton. There was a revival of an interest in environmentalism in 1990, uh, anniversaries of Earth Day, and the environmental movement was on the rise. And I was giving campus lectures, and I lecture on a wide variety of topics, but this one was coming up all the time, including students asking about it. And I knew that there was a difference. I could detect already a difference between ecology and environmentalism in the sense that ecology in the 70s, at least, for the most innocent of those concerned about it, those people really did, did at some level seem to care about clean air and clean water. Uh, or at least it seemed that way at the time. And, of course, who could be against that? If clean air and clean water are helpful to human life, it's not an anti-human thing to want clean air and clean water. But when it, when it uh, morphed into environmentalism, and, of course, when you think of any ism, you think of it as a kind of ideology, and then the question whether it's that good for you or not, environmentalism, I came to, to realize as a study of literature, was really, truly anti-human. Uh, in the sense that it defined uh, pristine as the non-human, uh, the part of nature not touched by man. The Wildlife uh, Foundation is an extreme example of this, but the Earth Firsters as well. And they define, uh, an environmentalist is really defined not as someone who really wants clean air and clean water, but who believes that man himself is in a, in a sense of cancer on the planet, and that man is unnatural. Uh, and so that he should not be permitted to, quote-unquote, contaminate the natural world. And then the second main feature of environmentalism I found was the idea that, uh, that nature, and again, nature's not man, nature, everything but man, has some kind of intrinsic value, a value in and of itself apart from any estimation for man 
Well, they couldn't have an estimation of man, right? Man's supposed to be out of the equation, according to these people. And when you combine those two, it's really quite a deadly philosophy and an anti-human philosophy. The, the issue, the sub-issue of pollution versus waste was just something I worked on separately because it, it frequently came up that if you, Salzman, and you, pro-capitalists, are anti-environmentalism, you seem to be, does that mean you're endorsing pollution? You know, so the whole distinction I started drawing between waste and pollution became important to the debate. And we can go into that to the extent you wish. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I've become very interested in the last six months, especially on the the use and misuse of the concept natural, because yeah. it's it's one of those concepts that's very dangerous in the sense that it has no legitimate contrast. So, for, for instance, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say neither of us are religious, so we don't right. believe in a, in a supernatural. So right. natural right. is contrasted supernatural, but if you don't believe there's a supernatural, then it, right. it, there's no contrast. And by the same token, what is the contrast? It, it's natural versus what? versus human. So what they're doing right. is they're making human seem bad instead of just saying, okay, there's human and non-human and we right. should prioritize human and, and non-human as a means to human, but they're making human beings seem out of nature. And, and you see this all the time with something like chemical. They'll say a chemical is bad. This frac fluid right. has chemicals and I'm, I'm scared right. of chemicals. Right. Even though humans themselves are of course comprised of chemicals. Uh, yeah, so so you're right. The major distinction is natural versus supernatural. And if you reject the supernatural realm and you have a natural realm, human beings are natural. They're part of nature. We refer to such things as human nature. Uh, Homo sapiens, you know, the human nature is a specific kind of animal with a rational faculty. I think it's interesting also because sometimes you hear it said that, well, no, we're distinguishing because humans uh, change the environment or they alter their ecosystem. But that's true of all living things. It's true actually of even inanimate things. So, for example, a tree alters its surrounding environment by shooting roots into the ground and sucking out nutrients and things. Animals change their environment to some extent. Now, it's possibly hated by anti-capitalists, but humans are really very good at altering yeah. Yeah. their environment. And they, do, they do it you know, much more politically and much more uh, beautifully, I would say, uh, relative to others. But that's because they have reasons, because they have a mind, they have greater capacities to do so. But this idea of altering, the, you know, that the distinction is altering the, the environment of the ecosystem, that isn't even true. And even inanimate objects like volcanoes, uh, earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, uh, they, cl they clearly alter the environment. That, in some cases, those things alter the environment way more than humans possibly could. Changes in uh, uh, sun, the sun, the strength of the sun, and things like that, uh, obviously beyond human direct human involvement alters. So it isn't even that that these environmentalists can cling to by claiming, well, the distinction we're making here is humans have something, something that altering the environment and these others don't. Yeah, I and mean, I sometimes uh, sort of, I sometimes cutely call this human racism because that's mm. there, it's against the human race. And, mm. and you, you made, you had a formulation a couple of minutes ago that I found very interesting, if I remember it correctly, which is this idea that, well, un, you know, non-human nature, in effect, is intrinsically valuable, and man isn't. And I thought, because I've always known this distinction of this idea of nature or the rest of nature is viewed as intrinsically valuable, but it's a really good point that human beings are not considered. Because if you look at, say, the tsunami, it's totally okay that that right. destroys other parts of nature. Right. The only right. thing that's not allowed to is man. 
Um, and the combination of the two, I think, is central to environmentalism. Uh, some people think this is just semantic, but the, I, I am willing to grant that the ecologists cared about clean air and clean water, and I'm pro-human, so if, if they are, I am too. But environmentalism itself, if you really look at it closely, and by the way, those who don't believe this uh, intrinsic view and the idea that man is not natural, a lot of students will say to me, well, I don't believe that, and I'll say, then you should not environmentalists. I mean, you should call yourself a, a water treatment specialist or something like that, but you're, you should not ally yourself with people whose basic philosophy is anti-human, and I could quote them chapter and verse, I won't bore you with all that, but you probably know most of that stuff. But the, the intrinsic and the non-natural together, you absolutely right, are essential, because if you start with man is unnatural and everything else has intrinsic value, then man doesn't have intrinsic value, and so he's excised from the equation if it were just um, if it were just intrinsicism, man might be saved, because these environmentalists would end up saying, "Well, man has intrinsic value too." Now, even though that's a flawed concept of value, at least man would be in the uh, arena of things that were to be preserved. But the actual way that environmentalists go at this is they don't think that it matters whether man is to be a uh, endangered species. That they don't care about in the least. They care about whether other, every other insect and thing is an endangered species. But the, the most, the best way to endanger man as a species is to wreck the political economic system that supports his life, which is pro-capitalist. So it's also you could go to the level beyond just the science or the philosophy of value theory. You could just go to the political economy of our most environmentalist pro-capitalist. Well, if you look, you find that they're not. Most of them are interventionists. Most of them are socialists of some kind or another. Most of them want strict uh, controls on all things coming out of the EPA. They endorse all that kind of stuff. They endorse the idea of causing, defining carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Carbon dioxide, the thing we ex have to expel in order to live, is to them a pollutant to be banned, which is another way of saying you have to ban human life. It's just amazing. Um, so um, the fact that environmentalists also tend on political economy level to be anti-capitalist is equivalent to someone's, you know, being against the habitat required of the bald eagle, <laughs> opposed to the habitat required of human beings. And the habitat is a, a pro-capitalist, uh, rights-respecting, limited government, constitutionally limited system. So that's that's relevant to point out too, I think. And with the expelling. Uh carbon dioxide, it's, it's really relevant that in the present technological context, especially with the, the gutting of nuclear over the last 30 years, we yeah. absolutely need to expel carbon dioxide. Our machines need to on a larger scale, precisely to do work on the scale that a modern human life requires. So it's, there's an exact parallel in terms of we need to generate energy to live in a good way, and that requires CO2. So to call it a pollutant is invalid, and we'll get into this more later, but even if there was a negative byproduct, it's, it's not right to see it as, as some like negative. I mean, there are all kinds of byproducts in life, but this is one that you can't say the process essential to life, uh, to a good life, is somehow bad. Right. The, the very contradictions, of course, associated with what types of energy um, environmentalists find legitimate or allowable. Uh, it could be picked up all day long. The, the, the idea that nuclear would solve some of the problems they claimed to be concerned about in terms of CO2 emissions, um, they, of course, oppose nuclear. And um, so carbon burning, uh, to the extent it would be abated by nuclear, uh, you'd think they'd be pro-nuclear. 
but they're not pro-nuclear. So I remember an environmentalist once saying, "We don't want, we don't want safe nuclear power. We want no nuclear power." So, uh, uh, but this is well known now. I think it's also interesting that when you look at just constructively, we know what they're against. But if you look at the few things they name as acceptable to them, namely wind power and the sun. And they don't even allow hydro, do they? Because those require huge, electro, uh, huge uh, dams, and they want to stop the extreme swimming of salmon. So if you just limit it to wind and sun, uh, wind and sun are the energy sources of a medieval, um, crude, medieval, barbaric uh, lifestyle. I mean, that's all it can support. And uh, that's very revealing. It's very revealing that they would pick the two energy sources that would support what at most 5% of the human population that we now have, maybe even less, which, uh, again, it shouldn't be all that inconsistent. It dovetails nicely with their view that there shouldn't be any humans on the planet because they're unnatural. So even the, you know, all this uh, pretended debate about biomass and wind and this and that is just silly because fundamentally they endorse these and not because there are superior ways of supporting a pro-capital, pro-capitalist, pro-industrial habitat for us, uh, but precisely because they don't uh, in any way have the possibility of providing such things. So, And, and it, it really, really is that. And this, this goes back to your point about every living being alters its environment. Every living being, you know, by its nature to live needs to change the rest of nature to meet its needs. And this includes any attempt at converting sunlight or wind into electricity. These are processes that involve enormous, enormous amounts of uh, toxic safety threats that take a, a good deal of ingenuity to try to, to deal with, both on the side of, of the mining and the refining of the kinds of uh, materials that you need to use. Some things in modern solar require, you can't be around them without a hazmat suit. And then right. you're talking about a bunch of you know, enormous arrays where the material has an, a very high toxicity often, and it has a 15-year expiration date. So if you want to talk about quote-unquote renewable, this is just a waste dump in effect. But for no, it would be fine if, if it produced energy, but it doesn't. So th this idea of clean, I mean, nuclear is infinitely cleaner and, and ha much easier to deal with than, say, solar. It's simply just the impracticality. As soon as it became practical, if it ever did, which is, is unlikely, it, it would be opposed for the massive... Uh, waste issues it has to deal with. And, and this gets into the issue that every technology has waste issues, and, it, and it's simply a smokescreen to say, I'm in favor of non-waste. I'm in favor of clean technology. That simply is an excuse to destroy whatever technology exists, because you can always call it dirty. Yes. I, um, this might be a good time to distinguish the waste versus pollution. I, the way I have thought of it and presented it in campuses is that um, you have to think, uh, you have to be for, put it this way, you have to be for waste and against uh, pollution, but in the following sense. Waste, you have to think of as a byproduct of life, and so that all life and life itself is a process by what happens, or whether it's plants, animals, or us. Living things ingest and expel chemicals, and they keep the nutrients they require, but the, but the very process includes byproducts expelling waste. You can't just ingest nutrients and not expel waste. So animals do it. Uh, even in the autumn, leaves are wasted from trees, right? Rat droppings constitute waste. Our caterpillar's carcass constitutes waste, uh, you know, the butterfly. So you cannot 
ever oppose waste unless you realize, boy, by the way, if I oppose waste, I'm opposing life itself because waste is a necessary byproduct of life. So um, without to get too graphic here, among humans, of course, waste would include going to the bathroom. It includes defecating. I mean, it's just unavoidable, right? Anyone who wants to claim they can avoid doing that and avoid issuing waste is just silly or anti-life. Um, it, it may sound odd to people, but the soot and smoke that emanates from a factory smokestack is like a factory going to the bathroom. Now, does that mean we want to sit atop the smokestack and, and, and smell the smoke? No, any more than we want to stick our heads in the toilet and see what's happening. The point of those things is to rationally handle the waste, not to stick our heads in the sand and say this waste doesn't exist or shouldn't exist or shouldn't we feel guilty that it does exist. None of that. Rather, it does exist. We should almost applaud the fact that it does exist, even if it exists in massive sums. They could talk about landfills and baby diapers and things or like mi- that. Or I mean, mining, basically every mining process. Yeah. yeah, but you could argue that if waste is truly a byproduct of life and production, the more waste, the better. Why? For waste itself? No, it's not intrinsically good. It's something we have to handle and get away from ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be sick. But because it must represent a byproduct of production. Now, what's also interesting, I find, is in industrial processes, it, the profit motive makes companies want to waste less. It's funny because the profit motive is condemned as causing capitalist overproduction and exploitation of the environment. But the actual profit motive is for a company to say, we need to ingest less material and produce more output relative to the material we ingest. We need to stop waste because that will help the bottom line. So the funny thing is the factories and the businesses of the world, now it's not the environmentalists or the EPA, but the profit motive itself, which most makes a company interested in minimizing waste but not excluding waste uh, so again to, you know if you oppose soot from a factory it, it's equivalent to opposing people going to the bathroom and and to make soot illegal for example would be equivalent to criminalizing going to the bathroom and that each of each of those things would harm and kill life uh, now pollution is different i i think it is worth saying although you have to make the distinction clear that unlike waste which we should welcome and manage uh, pollution could be defined as something like waste that harms life. Pollution is a kind of waste that actually redounds to our to the harm of our life. And in that regard, you have to oppose pollution, but not waste. And so now how do you do this? Well, the history is that engineers, largely capitalists, uh, inventors of toilets, inventors of anything hygienists come up with in, to handle waste. Uh, and to keep it away from us, uh, to keep the bacteria waste away from us, to treat waste and its effects in a way that makes it innocuous to us and immunizes us from its harms. That's all well and good, and that is pursued, and there are companies that make money at this. They're very good at doing it. Um, and so we properly have things like uh, you know, Waste Management Inc. that brings away our trash, and we have toilets, we have waste treatment plants, and pollution abatement devices. I think none of these things are due to government regulation. There's a self-interested motive in wanting clean air, clean water, and a, uh, you know, a hygienic environment around us. I mean, anyone who says that we don't want that is, is crazy, but it's not, it's not proper to have the government mandating it. Um, so I think the way I would end this, by, this kind of thing on waste versus pollution is, in, in the environmental literature and movement, there's an equivocation on this distinction between waste and pollution. The environmentalists try to get people 
to oppose pollution. Um, and it's proper, but they try to make it sound like it's the equivalent of waste. You know, so the two aren't distinguished. And if they say, well, what are you for, for pollution? Uh, they try to come out and, and make people feel guilty about uh, emitting waste. And uh, that's improper. So, so I want to I delve into to both of these uh, concepts because I think they're really interesting. So waste to me, when I think of what is waste, it seems contextual with uh, a given purpose. So it's, it's some byproduct of a process that doesn't serve the basic purpose of the process, but that leaves mm-hmm. entirely open. And, and it either has, it, qua waste, it either has no value or it can even have negative value, which then gets to the issue of the self-interest, assuming you have property rights, of either converting that waste into wealth or of neutralizing it so that it has no uh, negative impacts. So I'm curious what you think about that, especially if we then talk about waste in an animal context are we talking about so if if we talk about say um you know a cow going to the bathroom in the river and contaminating the water that we need to drink uh how do you classify that in terms of waste and pollution are we talking and are we talking about it from the perspective of the human or the cow or both right i think the 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 principle that people have found i'm not an expert on uh on animal life and and that but you know the the it's been shown, I think, that, uh, you know, uh, birds will not foul their own nest and things like that. Now, if, in the example you give, and it, so it seems to be a, an, an instinctual or built-in self-interest on the part of animals and others to to not, uh, you know, kill themselves by wallowing in their own waste. But in the case you gave of, a, of uh, animals or plants that get in our way, that get in the way of humans, um, I would call that, waste by an animal that could potentially be polluting to humans, in other words, ruining our drinking water. And, of course, the solution to it is for humans to intervene and stop the animals from doing that or redirect the waste emitted by the animals. But to do as some environmentalists do and say, um, well, we need to get rid of the things that waste, uh, you know, in that case they would probably say humans should stop eating meat and that will get that will minimize our reliance on cows, which in turn will minimize the pollution. Um, but I, you know, so long as the cow's waste is unavoidable, which it is, and so long as a lot of the waste is unavoidable as it is if we want to eat at McDonald's every day and create a lot of cows, the only solution is to impose the same kind of hygiene on, on them in regards to our values, the air and water we uh, ingest. But, you know, from, from that same standpoint, there, it's been shown that especially in nuclear power plants, for example, water has to be used in some cases for cooling purposes. And in some cases, it's rational to devote some air and some water to be repositories of waste. Uh, the waste has to go somewhere. And again, I'm not a scientist on waste treatment or waste management, but since it can't be abolished completely, um, it's not going to be completely abolished from air or water. I think it comes down to saying, well, as long as the water that's used for treatment is separate from the water that's used for drinking, that's fine. I, I actually heard of a proposal the other day that didn't seem too far-fetched to me, but also wasn't an environmentalist. Someone pointed out that they thought it odd that a perfectly clean drinking water is used in um, toilets. And they thought that was odd and a waste of water. Now, that actually may be. I don't know. I'm not a civil engineer on water. But that does seem odd that we would waste perfectly clean water uh, by using it for uh, 
waste treatment in that respect, you know. But I'm not sure whether the plumbing systems, you know, can be so distinctly separated that when we turn on the faucet, we get clean water. But when we go to the bathroom, we use less than clean water. I'm not sure the two systems can be distinguished. But that's not a bad way of looking at it. Again, it's not anti-life. It looks at it from the standpoint of uh, if water is a scarce resource, why are we using perfectly clean water to go to the bathroom? And it seems crazy. And, and to the extent it's rational to develop toilet systems that are water-free, I don't have a problem with that so long as they aren't mandated and made as loss-makers as I think they are now, the mostly loss-making devices that are installed. But if they were truly of rational self-interest to someone, hey, I'm saving water without any loss in hygienics, I'd be all for that. So. And this is one of these these situations where just specifying the principle is really the important thing to to do because, I mean, we look at the there are really interesting technical details, say, with, with dealing with water in general from the issue of, uh, you know, if you had mass nuclear power, you could arguably desalinate seawater yeah. in an economic right. way, in which case then it's not a, quote, scarce resource. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we have water socialism in many ways, both both in the ocean right. and when dealing with water, which can lead to real problems and, and uh you know, irrational economic situations. But there, there's also just the technical, I mean, what, the way in which water and then different types of water interact with other materials is just fascinating. And it, and it can be just, you know, salt water can just be so ruinous to different kinds of systems, particularly metals. And one of the beautiful things about petroleum-based products is because they're hydrocarbon instead of carbohydrate, the way they interact with water, you know, they can protect themselves against water for unbelievable amounts of time. Whereas, you know, so-called biodegradable things, part of the problem with them is they degrade. So in any case, it's it's a really interesting topic, but in terms of you know, political philosophy can be resolved rather easily, as against having all these busybodies make declarations about issues they usually have a very high degree of ignorance about. Yeah, you mentioned water socialism, and, and it brings it reminds me of one of the features I used to have in my campus talks on environmentalism. By the way, it's not as hot a topic anymore. I'm not quite sure why, but uh, we usually respond to requests from universities as to what topics are of interest, and it was very hot in the 90s and just hasn't been since then. I don't know. Maybe the reputation of the environmentalists is so fallen that it's not a hot issue on campuses anymore, or maybe all the sky is falling type stuff that we heard from them over the decade ate away at their reputation, or certainly the East Anglia uh, scandal on the emails may have heard as well. And, of course, Al Gore's just silliness uh, overall. It's, just, it's become almost a joke rather than a science. But the socialism part of it I think is interesting because it is generally true that air and water, which generally been the two things that environmentalists claim to care most about, uh, to the extent there any, is any problem of polluting those, it's largely due to the fact that they aren't privately held. And most people would recoil at that, the idea of the air and the water being privately owned. But uh, for the good part of the 18th century in the U.S., the water systems of this, of this country were privately owned. They were only taken over by the government during the progressive era. So uh, dams were largely built privately and elsewhere. But it does make it more difficult to figure out whether the markets are working or not because they're really make, not allowed to work. They're run by the government, they're owned by the government, and uh, in even more purely status socialist regimes like China and in the old Soviet Union, we know that the pollution problems are just awful. And awful, I would say, largely because there isn't any private property, any private motivation to keep property clean and hygienic. I remember a student once, when I made that point, said, no, the only reason China and Russia are dirty and pollutant is there's no EPAs there. 
I mean, this is how this is the mentality. The mentality of these people is that the only thing keeping the U.S. clean is the EPA, and that, but not for the EPA and all the regulations and requirements that the pro-capitalist motive would be to spoil uh, air and water. But if they were privately, you know, more privately owned, um, these things would be handled even better. So that that is an issue and that is a problem. It's just hard to distinguish uh, private market behavior because it's such a hybrid system that we have today. There's been some move toward privatizing certain things, even privatizing things like garbage collection and distribution. But uh, and when it's worked, it's worked well. But um, it's true the government controls most of these things now. So going back to the issue of, of waste uh, versus pollution, I, I just looked up actually what the definition of pollution is on at least dictionary.com because I was thinking we're talking about pollution in a sense of waste, at least from a human context, waste that harms human life. And yet when I think about it that way, it doesn't quite capture because you don't usually think of going to the bath. Like Even if it was harmful, you wouldn't think of it as pollution or even even like having a a fire in your own fireplace isn't pollution. So I found right. this I found right. this definition actually really good, which is not always true when you look on dictionary.com. Yeah. But they say yeah. the introduction of harmful substances or products into an environment. So I like this yeah. idea of the introduction. And that right. gets us into the issue of of property rights, where I, I feel like it's really fascinating issue and I think um, a couple of years ago, Ankar Gatti at ARI helped me think through it a bit because there's a certain view of pollution legally, which is that any negative thing that happens in your environment that someone else introduces should be illegal. And this is a very, quote unquote, libertarian type view, like Walter right. Block and other people. And it's as if, as if property rights means we're completely hermetically sealed. And I don't see any logical difference between that view and the view that and they'll often call it an externality. Well, well, what about the externality of I open a restaurant, outcompete someone else, and now he's less financially well off, he can't afford as much health care. Like, did I violate his rights? I'm curious what you think about how, like, the issue of pollution and rights and how you define it in a way that protects rights without violating our right to produce energy. Because waste, as you said, is inherent in life and in any given technological context, a certain amount of, a certain amount of, even harmful waste, harmful out of context, not harmful in context, is necessary for life. Yeah, I think in the second case, and I'll handle the dictionary.com definition first, which I do think is interesting, but in the second case, I refer to things like in, in the legal sense of materiality and intent. But in the case, uh, notice harm was a phrase used in the definition, and uh, I think that's appropriate. So the definition I had was pollution is waste that would not to the harm of life. Um, notice that if you go to the bathroom and it's dispensed with properly, that's waste that redounds to the benefit of life. It didn't harm you. Uh, you didn't get any bacteria. Um, it is waste, but I wouldn't call that pollution. It's waste that we got rid of. Now, had the toilet backed up or had we been so stupid as to believe we could drink what we did after we went to the bathroom, then it would redound to the harm of life, and then that same thing becomes pollution. Now, whether someone inflicts it on somebody else, I think I think you're absolutely right that this this um, method that some have of denying that any externalities whatsoever should go unpunished, or by the way, there's not just negative externalities. This same argument has to deal with the issue of positive externalities. So you mentioned the restaurant you opened up, and it might run somebody else out of business. Okay, a negative externality on him. But since now I can go to your restaurant, and prior to that there was no restaurant in the neighborhood, 
uh, even though I am paying you, I find there's an extra, you know, positive externality in this neighborhood because just the town is just a nicer town to be in because it has this restaurant and might have other restaurants. So, uh, but this issue of, you know, uh, carefully calculating every penny imposed on somebody else, I, I think is improper and, and non-objective, although I don't think it's an easy thing for people to understand. Um, it's, it, but if you go from the standpoint, as I do, that waste is unavoidable as a part of life. Okay, so then the first thing is it's unavoidable. So to take something that's unavoidable, again, as long as we want life, and to know that something has to be done with it, and then say, well, people should be punished for this, is, I would say, just on a logical, philosophical level, amounts to punishing for life, which is just improper. So if you have a philosophy of law that says we should punish for harms to life, but not for life itself, and then the issue of materiality, I, I, it's the closest answer I've ever given to something like this, namely, if someone emits waste and you, and you yourself, Salzman, are admitting it doesn't have no effect, even if it's handled really well, it might have some trace effects. I think the only way to handle this legally is to speak of things like materiality. Like, does, can someone show that it has a material effect? Again, a legal term. I'm, I'm skirting it maybe a little bit. But does it have a material harmful effect on my life? Or is it just part of the general thing that people do in life and it's unavoidable? Now, this is different, of course, than just dumping your waste in someone's property. That's clearly a violation of their rights. Um, but the idea of driving down the street and emitting carbon uh, monoxide into the air, uh, you know, and someone in a remote county might get trace elements of this, so do they get to sue you? I think it's just non-objective. Um, but I don't deny that it's a difficult thing to discuss. Um, it's almost like it's almost like you resort to saying, well, I know bad pollution when I see it, you know, when... when uh, when the bad stuff is like dumped right down my throat by some neighbor, everybody knows that one. But what about these more trace elements? Well, I mean, I, I often think of it, like the, the example I often use as a baseline to just show the principle is the idea of when, when man invented fire, the smoke from fire. You know, is that, right. is that pollution? Right. And, and you can say even a, child, a parent needed to subject his child to that because otherwise the child right. was going to freeze to death. But right. in a modern context, if a parent subjected his child to that amount of smoke, you would say that is, that is I mean, whether it's pollution or it's, it's, that is illegal in the sense of it's, it's, a, it's an unnecessary and, and real uh, harm. And I think as we, it's important to know historically that what happens is that you're trading um, a worse form of waste generally uh, for a better form, but more broadly, you're, you're trading a less life-promoting way of life. So waste is only right. one aspect of life and not the most important. The most important right. is the positive productive. So the way I think about it is kind of like when Ayn Rand talks about the rights of something like patents and particularly patents where you have numerous legitimate concerns that people have with their well-being and pursuing it in concert with others. And it is relevant if there's a coal plant in 1850, it is relevant, it should be thought about and considered that that smoke, all things being equal, is not by itself healthy, but it also needs to be considered the people's right to produce coal and benefits. I think you need to I think it needs to be viewed as an integrated issue. And what we have in modern environmental thinking is the weight, the production is not considered interesting or a right whatsoever. The only thing that bears on rights is the waste, which is bizarre because all the production matters so much more than the waste in terms of human life. And that's why even China, with all the smoke, their life expectancy shot up like a rocket. 
Yeah, and even though we want to avoid, say, doing with this kind of a social efficiency calculus, uh, utilitarian cost-benefit analysis, um, and we want to be rights-respecting, which I think capitalism is, even in the issue of waste treatment, um, it is true. I think the important point you make is about the fact that it's an integrated it has to be recognized as an integrated process. That's what we started from the beginning, right? That waste is a natural byproduct of production. And unlike environmentalists, I think most people realize this. So, for example, it's well known that this same 200-year industrial period that environmentalists claim, uh, complain about that we've had, um, where they complain that CO2 emissions have grown the most, and pollution uh, or waste, you could say, has grown the most, has also been the most productive uh, 200 years as well. And that's no mystery to us because what we're saying is waste comes from production. And But the fact that human life has been expanded and, and, and improved in so many ways by so many measures, whether it's lifespan or population growth, the same population growth environmentalists hate, the same population growth that environmentalists fear or claim to fear, uh, that's gone up, health has gone up, disease has gone down, longevity's gone up, retirement years have gone up. So by every possible measure, this same 200-year unique industrial period, unprecedented in human history, has, bought, has brought both more waste, but because it has brought more uh, production. And I think most people realize that. I think it's also interesting to realize or to recognize, important to recognize, that you want as free a country as possible so that people can make these trade-offs. So, for example, if we didn't have the EPA or environmentalists controlling and mandating our lives for us, suppose you were a, quote, ecologist and you loved being in nature, you would move away from the cities. You would move away from factories. Uh, others would flee to the cities, yeah. as they did through most of the capitalist period, uh, around Jefferson's time, 40% of people were in uh, agriculture and farming. Today, only 3% of the population is in farming. And the whole trek was up from the fields into the cities. So just, just on sheer historical demographic trends alone, you, have, you would have to ask, what are people really doing vis-a-vis -vis what the environmentalists claim they should be doing? They're running toward, they're running toward pollution. They're running toward cities and congestion and things like that, it, there's got to be some net benefit that they, by their own, have calculated. And, again, this doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, adjudicate cases, material cases of people harming each other with pollution, but the trend, of course, has been toward a population, for the most part, moving toward more congested, call it more polluting areas. And then there's a, and then there's a motivation within those areas, this was true in L.A. many years ago, to solve the uh, smog problem. Again, by total self-interest, not by the EPA. And the nice thing about it is you can be, quote-unquote, an environmentalist if you want and go off and live in the woods and uh, live in a shack, uh, you know, so long as you don't pull a Ted Kaczynski and lob bombs in through the, uh, the U.S. Postal Service. So just, just, just keep to yourself and, <clears throat> you know, enjoy this kind of solipsistic yeah, enjoy. Uh, hermetical existence. You could do it. So unlike in, you know, in the socialist environmentalist um uh, state, you can't be a capitalist. But in a capitalist system, you can go off and be an environmentalist if you want. If you, as long as you don't harm other people, you can go and be as unnatural as possible and try not to touch the environment and leave the local stream pristine and see how long you last. You're perfectly free to do it, 
the problem we have today is we have environmentalists ensconced clearly in the capitalist system trying to undermine it and stop it. They're not just going away to the woods to enjoy their pristine uh, lifestyles. Yeah, there's so many so many issues that are coming up really make me uh, appreciate even more how distinctively good and precise Ayn Rand's ideas are on these issues. So one on the issue you just raised is the idea of the separation of state and economics, which I think is very exactly worded, the separation of state and economics. So the idea that you can have, in a free society, you can have your own economic ideas. So Paul Krugman and all these people in favor of socialized medicine who are so indignant including a lot of rich people, they can go start the equivalent of, a, or they should be able to, and they pretty much can, you know, a socialized medicine commune, a collective medicine yeah. commune, and leave the rest right. of us alone. So right. what it's, what's obvious then is that this, this never occurs to them because what they want is the freedom, so-called, to destroy. And that's true with the environmentalists. What they want to do is destroy the cities, not just live in, not live outside them, but actually just destroy them. Right. Um, you know, some of them are nihilists, as you just say, they just want to destroy, and uh, others, it's hard, to dis it's hard to say what the motivations for others are, and you hate to just say they're ignorant, but, uh, you know, someone as intelligent as a Nobel Prize winner who's advocating, uh, who, who should know economics and is advocating policies that would destroy the economy, you know, at some point you have to say, well, the person's not stupid, they must intend this. Uh, that's always hard to distinguish, but uh, I think the environmentalists, quad environmentalists, are are largely nihilistic. Um, and again, I would encourage any listeners who find this a little shocking and say, "Geez, I considered myself an environmentalist, and these guys are saying that environmentalists are killers." <laughs> first of all, if you just read the extreme environmentalist literature, they are Earth First and others. Uh, uh, what's that liberation group? I forget. Earth Liberation Society. There's a whole bunch of them you can yeah. find. Ted, Ted Kaczynski types. But the more a mixed case, they'll say is, well, I consider myself an environmentalist. And uh, again, the test for me, the test is, if you want clean air and clean water, so do I. We're on the same side. You should be pro-capitalist, pro-technology, pro-industry. Uh, don't scratch your head over that. That is not a head scratcher. That that is what capitalism has delivered—a very clean environment and a very productive environment at the same time. Which is no mean feat, because the more productive the environment becomes, the more waste it will emit. Okay, but what does it also become very productive at? It becomes very productive at waste management. That's one of the sub-industries in capitalism. It's amazing, and again, not instigated by the EPA. Now, the distinction on environmentalism is: if you believe at some deep level that you, as a human being, aren't really natural. You're not really a natural part of this world. You're somehow unnatural or synthetic. And worse, if you further think uh, all the things that do have value in this world, which isn't you, um, have intrinsic value, in which case they don't relate to you at all. They shouldn't relate to you at all, and they should all remain untouched, which is the main goal of the environment. You would die. That's, just, that's why they're killers. You, you would have to leave the intrinsically valuable things untouched, according to the environmentalists, because the, first, the, the, the minute you intervene, uh, you contaminate and destroy. So the, the funny thing is the environmentalists actually think we're nihilists and we're destroyers. We think they are. It's a very odd setup. I, I've seen this mentality coming at me. They see us as destroyers. Sometimes they'll refer to us raping the environment, raping yeah. nature. So a physical act of, you know, penetrating, you know, an oil drill rig, literally penetrating <laughs> the earth and violating her honor, 
uh, this is how they think. But you can only think that way if you thought of um, nature as everything but man and having intrinsic value, which, you know, in our view, the criteria should be objective value. If anything has value, it has value to us for a certain purpose. And that's it. And some things might not have value to us, in which case we can waste them. But um, the only proper value is not intrinsic value, apart from man, which drops the context, but value in the context of a valuer. So, so long as that's done, we value clean air and clean water, but we also value a vigorous growing economy, which will emit waste. Uh, and then we value the, the ingenious ways that hygienists and engineers and capitalists have handled that waste. With regard to even the term environmentalist, it's such a, if you just think about, you're, you're thinking about life, you're thinking about your philosophy just, just from the drawing board, it would be very bizarre to think, I'm going to define myself by environment. Like that's going mm -hmm. to be the integrating principle of life, like my surroundings. It'd be like me saying, you know, in my office right now, I, like I'm an officist. No, my office right. is a means... Right. To right. me, so we—it's important to distinguish. There's the human environment and the non-human environment. But the yeah. only way you would define a whole philosophy is if the non-human environment was the goal. Because if the human environment was the goal, then you would be a humanist. Human life right. would be the. So you'd say, "I'm a humanist." So the, just right. like with nature, there's no real contrast. With in, the question is, what's the contrast to environmentalist? And the real answer is humanist, someone who values yeah. human life, because right. it's right. not the human environment that. Because if the human environment, you wouldn't define life by an environment. So the only, the only environment you would define a philosophy by is one, is one that requires you to sacrifice and do something different than pursuing human life. Right, right. And I think that's, that the resort to the phrase humanist is a good one, too, because a humanist who has a human, uh, man-centered view of things, you know, which has, is usually distinguished from, uh, is usually seen as secular and distinguished from a religious or a supernatural focus. If you go back to the origins of humanism, which I suppose could go back to Greek culture, but just take it back a hundred years, it is interesting also that environmentalism didn't have any sway during the progressive era. Now, there were, there were um, Teddy Roosevelt-type conservationists, clearly, there's no doubt about that. But, but their motive was, you know, as the cities are growing, let's have a central park, so what? So humans can never touch it? No, so, so humans could enjoy it on the weekends and stroll their babies through Central Park. And then look at Central Park itself, a highly managed system with uh, zoos in it and castles and places to roller skate and stuff like that. There's fountains. You can go skating. There's duck ponds. So the, uh, even something like uh, those parks serve a selfish human purpose. And I think the fact that even Marxists, when talking about socialists and stuff, would laugh, or, or the old ones, call it the old left, would have, would have de de detested environmentalism, because even the Marxists, who were anti-capitalist, as the environmentalists are, at least the old Marxists said, man should use his labor, granted manual labor, physical labor, to uh, produce as much as possible and liberate himself, and, uh, and no old-school Marxist would ever truck with environmentalism. He would consider it anti-human. And so the, the humanists among the secular left, of the old secular left, uh, would be anti-environmentalists in the way I am. They would just be there for a, for a different reason. But uh, I think the original point you made out is a good one about how can they be environmentalists. It's, it's, it seems like an odd essential to focus on. I think the easiest way to think of the error is to substitute the word habitat, which even they will use. 
So, and then in this way, you can say to environmentalists, okay, you seem concerned about the habitat, say, of the owl, of the spotted owl. Now, what do you mean by that? Uh, or sometimes I'll say ecosystem, but habitat seems more narrowly construed. Mm-hmm. And they would say, all the things that that spotted owl needs to survive and flourish. And you say to yourself, okay, I understand that. We could probably even define that together. But then my answer, my retort would be, humans have a habitat, do they not? Uh, we can't live at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we can't live in very, very high heat. Uh, so there's a, there's a habitat that maximizes the, the living, surviving, and flourishing of human beings as well. Why wouldn't environmentalists or, who, who allege to be concerned with habitat not want to maximize the human habitat? Uh, and my, my answer would be they largely don't because they don't consider humans to be natural. But if they did, and if they were concerned about the human habitat, well, then you can start getting into a discussion about what is the optimal human habitat, not just physiologically, heat and clothing and shelter and all the things that are, that are common and pedestrian, but more political economic. He needs freedom. He needs the rule of law. He needs a government focused on protecting his rights, not violating them. Uh, he needs a government that allows him to handle waste, not condemns his exhaling his breath, as the EPA wants to do. So um, sometimes you can get an environmentalist to understand it by saying, listen, I care about habitat just like you do, only I include humans in habitat in, in my list of concerns. And that's clearly above plant and animals. And that would get a bigger debate going. So one one final thought that I had that I want to hear your your take on, and this is uh, you know because we're obviously both in the philosophic tradition of Ayn Rand, uh, and I was saying that that there's all these things about this issue where she where her uniqueness stands out from many so-called libertarians, and I think one thing, and this is common with uh, her and the founding fathers, is the focus on rights as a positive, because in much libertarian thought, it's just kind of a negative. It's these are the things you're not allowed to do. And there's the issue of force, but there's not much of a context of what force is. So it amounts to you can't do anything that in any way harms anyone in any way. And that's part of the obsession of externalities. Whereas Ayn Rand, I'm looking at her essay, Man's Rights. For every individual, a right is the moral sanction of a positive. Um, and she talks about her starting point is what is an individual, what is required for him to live? And by the same token, you have the founding father saying it's a positive life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And only in that context can you even know what coercion is. Can you know whether smoke you know, from a fire is coercion or not? But it's really just so valuable to, to think of rights as a means to an end, as a positive thing, rather than just this arbitrary duty we have to in no way touch other people regardless of what that means for the positive of human life and the positive of production, which I think is incredibly undervalued by most political theorists. Yes, and I think the uh, another way of looking at this would be to say um, her defense of rights in that positive way uh, did not uh, prevent her from understanding the nature of a force and fraud and how it might be imposed on others, including uh, with pollution. And so people should understand that uh, although Ayn Rand was a full-fledged advocate of laissez-faire capitalism and egoism and all that, she was she did not endorse uh, you know a system whereby uh, pollution materially and intentionally harmed others. Uh, on the other hand, this other strain you're talking about, I have seen this other strain by the way, not just in, in libertarians, I've seen some other contexts. Uh, certain positivist economists believe every 
positive externality deserves a subsidy, and every negative externality deserves a, deserves a tax. And so it's not unique to libertarianism. But I do think it is somewhat of a perversion of how to handle these issues because it has to be handled contextually. But it's not an easy thing to handle in a brief conversation. Uh, if if uh, waste is going to be emitted and there are going to be trace elements that, that don't materially harm other people, okay, so it's not material and it's not intentional, there has to be some system that permits that and allows that and does not hold people accountable for that. That's troubling to some who think, well, it's not a full-fledged case for rights. Um, I think it is. It's just a full-fledged case of recognizing that life involves waste. And exactly. to pretend, pretend that it can be hermetically sealed and never have trace effects is to drop massive context. Those are just facts. They don't really even need to be debated. They're just facts, and I've never seen any system. Maybe this is even more important, don't just beyond the principle of it. I've never seen any practical system of adjudication or torts that uh, anyone has come up with to handle that kind of premise, that kind of premise that we're not going to let any trace elements of good or bad go unpunished or unsubsidized. Um, it's, it, when you have a legal premise that actually can't be implemented, I think that's a, apart from the principle, the, the problem of principle is a, is a big argument against it. It can't be practically implemented. Yeah, I think, so, I think logically, if, if you really take this, this hermetically sealed premise, as I indicated, you can apply it to economics in terms of it's you know it's a right violation if in any way my action leads to someone else being less wealthy because that affects their physical well-being and it can be applied emotionally you know if someone if I want a girl and someone else takes her away and I'm unhappy that affects my emotional well-being which can ultimately affect my physical well-being so the, the rights theorists rights emerge in a context where people knew that human beings interact in all sorts of ways that impact one another positively and negatively and the whole challenge is to define exactly when the government intervenes and that you need to have an idea of what life fundamentally requires which is uncoerced positive action to create the values that life requires and a huge part of that is preventing the initiation of force but to know exactly what that means depends on the, the whole technological context uh, of a society so again if, if someone reads uh, Ayn Rand's essay The Anti-Industrial Revolution I think if you listen to what we're talking about you'll just see how precise a thinker we're dealing with and, and how much value there is and hopefully those ideas will be more adopted in the debate than they have been thus far. Right. In the continuum of violating rights, uh, if you thought of this as going from punching someone in the nose, if there's a very physicalist, uh, that's an obvious one for Putin. But she does include in there violations of rights by fraud. And when you think about it, fraud isn't uh, technically touching anybody. It's, uh, say, promising them a product and them not delivering what you advertised. It's uh, indirect. Uh, now, you go further and say, okay, what about pollution? Uh, it maybe I don't know if, it, it, it's on, if, if it's to the right of fraud on the continuum uh, or whether it's between. And you could show some material effect on your lungs or something like that. It actually becomes closer to the punch. But if so, then you have to, in the law, at least get into things like materiality, was it really a punch in the nose, or was it just the air going by my nose with your fist? Or, and then intent. Did you intend to do this, or was it a totally innocent byproduct of me driving my car down the street? Some little soot might have got on the top leaves of your tree. You would never even notice it. But according to these extremists, they'd go out and have a cop investigate that. I mean, it seems crazy. But, um, and and I, I think there is a value. We talked about this earlier. I think there is a value in people realizing 
in a free country, but this means it has to be a really free country, that they know what certain areas are like. They're either more industrial or less. They're more uh, bucolic or less. And the nice thing is you can move around the country and go to those areas that are more environmentally interesting to you or valuable to you. Uh, and so instead of imposing a singular environmental standard or even a soot standard, say, on everybody uh, from on high, you have different elements. So, you know, hey, I go to Pittsburgh. I know there's mining there. I know there's going to be more pollution there, but I have, I have a job in mining at least. Or I want to get away from this completely and live in the desert in Arizona, and uh, uh, you're free to do that. And I think that's, that's probably an important answer to how would capitalism handle All right, Part well, of it is just by moving around. All right. Well, uh, uh, I'm sure our listeners enjoyed that, Richard. Uh, I really. Oh, well, I did. I did too. I did too. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm glad that you. Well, me, me too, for sure. But I'm glad you uh, got into this, and I've always appreciated how how much you think about philosophy, even though your your subject is is economics, and often yeah. often just have a lot of specific insight uh, into philosophy. So, where can uh, where should listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, they can start, I guess, on my corporate website, which is Intermarket Forecasting, uh, but that's more my economic stuff. The other place to go is at Forbes.com. I have a regular column which deals with uh, mostly economics, but sometimes some of these more tangential things like government policy, public policy and other areas. Um, so Forbes.com, uh, if you just search by Richard Salzman at Forbes.com, you'll get to my and Salzman is S A L S M A N. Right, S A L S M A N, Richard. So that'd be a place to start, and uh, you can probably just Google me too, and you'll find some stuff. All right. I'm, and... I'm working. I'm working on a personal website where some of my stuff, including on environmentalism, will be available. But that's probably in the middle of the year. Uh, all right. Well, uh, just let me let me know, uh, and for sure we'll we'll post a link to it. Uh, any final thoughts you want to? Leave listeners well, with. I want to I, I want to applaud the work you're doing. Uh, I really like it. I've been following it, obviously, and I think it's wonderful. And I, I've seen you on the web and elsewhere, but the, the work you're doing is great. And I applaud it. So, the more following you get, uh, the happier I am. So, keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, Richard, for coming on the show, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Richard Salzman for coming on Power Hour. Now, often at the end of the show, I'll do a recap or, or give you my own take. But this this was an episode where I think uh, all the points that I thought were really important came out. And I thought Richard had some really good insights. And even as we were going through the show, uh, I felt like certain areas were becoming clearer for me. Uh, so hopefully you uh, you really enjoyed that. And I think we, you know, we got through a, a full hour uh, of an interview, so it's power hour. We don't want to go too much farther over. So, as always, any questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. And until next time, next week we'll have another great show, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.